When the world becomes more than we can bear, we may not understand. It may not make any sense to us based on who we know God is. There often is no conclusion, but there is unfailing love even in the midst of it. We can know this, whatever the reason for hard times or suffering, it can't be because God's love has failed. Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith, and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together. We've just more or less wrapped up going through the book of Joshua, and of course there's probably plenty more that we could have done and talked about in that series, but uh, for those of you who might be new, we just went through the whole book of Joshua, which is a book that describes the process by which God led a multitude of lower class slaves out from wandering in the wilderness to become a great nation that occupied the land of Canaan. And, and that was in fulfillment of what he had promised them to their ancestors. But if you ask, what has been the dominant theme of this book? What has been the dominant theme of Joshua throughout? And you hear it over and over again in each episode, be strong and courageous, right? Be very strong and courageous. But by now, if you've been tracking with us through the journey, you know that strong and courageous does not mean what we might typically think it means. I usually think of something along the lines of William Wallace and Braveheart, you know, rallying everyone together, putting their war paint on and, you know, shouting like crazy animals, you know, as they're about to take on the impossible odds of the British army and so on. But what we saw is that to be strong and courageous in this instance means to trust. To have trust and confidence in the God who fights for you. And while there were many battles, it is broadly recognized that God fought for the people. In the summary, the final chapter of the book, he says, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword or bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So if not William Wallace, what does strong and courageous look like? And this is a bit of review from our earlier messages, but but it's don't be afraid, don't fear, don't forget, and don't turn, don't turn away. You know, don't fear because if we fear, we won't trust. If we're afraid, we're going to look immediately to things that, that seem to be more trustworthy, we'll turn away. 
Don't forget, remember Joshua chapter 4 when they built the altar of stones that represented the people coming out of the the river of judgment into a, a land as a planted nation. Don't forget what the Lord has done for you. If you forget, it'd be easy to wander. And don't turn away. Don't turn away. Joshua 23, last week we talked about, he says, be very strong. There is our theme, right? Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast. Hold fast to the Lord your God. Don't turn away as you have until now. So last week's conclusion, we ended with this choice. He calls them to choose. Choose today whom you will serve. You have now seen in every way possible, God is saying, that I have chosen you, and I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to coerce you because I love you. Will you choose me also? Will you choose me in return? And so the story, the book, ends with a covenant or a renewal of the covenant, which is a mutually agreed upon set of terms of the relationship that both parties commit themselves to. If you hold fast to me, obey my instructions, and keep the Torah, I will bless you as my chosen nation through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. And that all sounds well and good. But if you are familiar with the rest of the story, did Israel keep this covenant? No, not real well. Like the next book, the book of Judges, is just a big downward spiral. There's some good, important things to read in there. But it's a whole lot of Israel just rebelling against God. And then when they're at their utmost, you know, the worst situation possible, they might turn around and ask God to help them, and he does. He, he rescues them and reclaims them over and over again until you get to the age of the monarchy when Israel started establishing kings for themselves. And at that point, there were really good moments in their history and then really bad moments. But what I want to talk about today is this question. How do we respond when that trust is put to the test? Be very strong. Do not fear. The Lord will fight for you. Well, what if it looks like He doesn't fight for you? Don't forget what the Lord has done. What if I haven't forgotten, but the current situation doesn't seem to be in keeping with what I have been called to remember? And don't turn. Hold fast. Well, what if I'm holding on, even if by a thread, but it sure feels like God has let go of me? Has anyone ever been in that situation where you felt that way? And so in light of that, as I was thinking about where to go this week, should we do one more on Joshua? Should we wrap it all up? Should we do something else? We're going to start in the book of James, I believe on the 12th of September, and we've got a few in-between weeks. And so as I was trying to pick through what to really land on this week, nothing really stuck until I hit a cross-reference to a psalm, Psalm 44, that I think just speaks to kind of maybe where some of us are at. And, and it's a good 
segue from this. But as we, as Tyler mentioned, as Ron mentioned, you know, we're in the midst of another surge of COVID. And if anybody, you know, this is probably the one place we don't want to hear more about COVID-19, right? But, but this has been a really tough week for me. You know, to hear about that, and I have a, a, a friend who is a mentor of mine. I worked as his assistant at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, who's now on a ventilator and in a coma as they try to resuscitate, well, to give his lungs time to heal. I've been approached by three people who are concerned, randomly different people who are concerned because they face losing their jobs over vaccine mandates. They don't feel comfortable getting the vaccine, and I think that we can respect all positions on that. But they're going, what do I do? You know, do I, do I just do it because someone told me to, and I'm going to lose my job if I don't? And then there's Afghanistan. And just seeing the images of people desperate to get out, and they can't. And knowing that women are going to face incredible tribulation over there. Christians are going to face incredible tribulation. What do you do? You know, what do you do? So it's just been that kind of a week. And in light of that, what I want to do is I want to read Psalm 44. We're just going to read the whole psalm. Starting in verse 1. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days. In days long ago, with your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boasts all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. And our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame. At the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of my enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed away from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, 
Would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Let's pray. Father, while the truth is we have it pretty good here, at the same time, there are hard weeks. There are times when we are faced with a cruel world that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I thank you for the honesty of this psalm that cries out. It says, Lord, we, we don't really get it. It's not really adding up. And I thank you that you are a God who can handle that honestly, honesty. You don't call us to put on a facade or speak in a way that is worthy that would never question your actions or lack thereof. So as we wrestle with this, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and be a comfort and wrestle with us today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So it's not totally clear when this psalm was written. Um, obviously, it's after Israel had suffered a defeat, possibly during the reign of Hezekiah the king, or um, when he was sieged by Sennacherib of Assyria, or when the Pharaoh Necho attacked and killed Josiah the king. People speculate on both of those. Both were high points in Israel's history during times of reform, and yet they were still defeated by their enemies to some degree or another. In any case, the specific event isn't given because it's meant for recurring use. This was meant to be sung as a congregation when times were appropriate for it. And it's not very often in current worship services that you sing songs like this, is it? Sometimes life sucks, and we don't get it, and there are songs for that. This song would be sung corporately as a lament, and so I think one point that we can take from it is that it's okay to acknowledge that you're not okay. Lord, you say, don't fear, but I'm kind of afraid. You know, it... Don't forget. Well, I haven't forgotten, but have you forgotten me? God isn't looking for flattery. You're not a lesser follower when you're struggling to understand the things that don't seem to add up. Psalms like this give us permission to come to Him honestly. This is not a God who smites those who question Him. Second point. I want to make some observations about what this psalmist is saying and what he isn't saying. So what he is saying, I have, you know, I had legitimate expectations from God, but now I'm feeling let down. Okay. He describes a condition that fits closely with Deuteronomy's 20, Deuteronomy 28's warning about what will happen if Israel disobeys God, and yet in this instance, 
from his point of view anyway, they haven't, at least not to his knowledge. And I just want you to notice that the psalmist holds God responsible, either directly because of God's action or indirectly because God has fallen asleep, whatever that may mean. In this prayer, as Craig Broyles puts it, God is both the problem and the solution. The psalmist feels betrayed because he knows that it is the Lord who fights for his people. It's always God versus his enemies, not us versus them. And yet, because of this defeat, he infers that that means that God has brought this upon his own people. You loved our ancestors. You've rejected us. They won because the light of your face but now, from us, you seem to hide your face. You put their adversaries to shame, but now you have made us a reproach and a byword among the nations, and my face is covered with shame. So God is interpreted as having worked against his own people. So, honestly, do you ever feel that way? You ever wonder, why are these things happening? Why, haven't I served you? Aren't you the God of love? How can you allow this to happen? The psalmist claims that the people are innocent, and yet God has been cruel and betrayed and crushed them. On account of you, Lord, not us, we face death all day long. So next, what is the psalm not saying? Notice the struggle. The psalmist isn't denying the history of God's unfailing love. He will not revise history. He remembers what God has done. I think sometimes, like when a marriage goes bad, I heard a counselor once say that you can always tell when a marriage is going to end badly if they're in turmoil based on this question. Tell me about your wedding day. And if you hear... You know, it was beautiful. Um, it, it, was, it was wonderful. We were so in love. Our family were there. The weather was perfect. The flowers, I can still smell. You know, just all those details. Even in the midst of this turmoil, I can still tell it was a good day. But if you hear, it's horrible. The photographer was 30 minutes late. The decorations were all wrong. The caterer... Uh, totally mixed up, mixed up the quantities and people didn't have, you know, enough food and nobody danced on the dance floor and, you know, just... Sometimes when things don't go right, we go back and rework the history, right? Maybe God wasn't there all along. Maybe He didn't do all those things that were a part of my testimony before. Maybe that was just coincidence or happenstance or... You know, when we start to struggle, it's tempting to revise history. But the psalmist isn't doing that. He isn't turning away from God. He still says, you are my king, not you were my king and my God. Even in this pain, the psalmist is not changing his allegiance or turning away. He says, we will praise your name forever. That has not changed. So where does that lead us? How do you bring this to a conclusion? What is the conclusion? There is none. Right? It doesn't resolve itself really, right? 
We know who you are. We know what you've done. We know and we believe in your unfailing love, your chesed, as we'll learn about in a minute. And that means that you have a plan. You have a purpose in all of this. We aren't denying that. And we're not turning away. And yet this doesn't make any sense whatsoever right now. You seem to have abandoned us. You've crushed us. We don't get it. We simply exist in this painful place. And so what do we do? We cry out. Right? So hear us. Wake up. Answer us. Rise up. Rescue us. Because of your unfailing love. That word there, chesed, that is translated unfailing love, is used throughout Scripture as a basis for calling upon God. And the Bible Project recently did a video on this word, this theme. And so I want to go ahead and just show it. What is the basis for our outcry, for crying out to God? So go ahead and turn your attention to that. Hi, all. I will have the audio for the video coming after this quick note. We highly recommend watching the video as it has fantastic visuals to go with it, just like all Bible Project videos do. It's available on our website on the blog post titled Trust Amidst Uncertainty from August 24th, 2021. You can also watch it directly on YouTube by searching Bible Project Loyal Love. It's their video posted on January 12th, 2021. Here's the audio from the video. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word that's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, 
When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asks God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist that's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal love. So I want you to notice that as the psalmist is crying out to God, the basis for his cry, rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. Earlier he says, we didn't betray you, we didn't forget you, we didn't break your covenant, but that's not the basis for his cry. He calls on God to act in accordance with who he is. We know, we believe, we claim that you are a God who keeps your promises and loves your people, and that's just who you are. Promise-keeping loyalty motivated by deep personal care, is how he put it. But what if God's role for his people isn't just to be the recipients of God's loyal love? What if, as God's representatives, the people are supposed to display it to the nations? Would that not imply suffering on behalf of the nations or bearing the reproach of the nations? In Isaiah, after Israel's repeated failures, Isaiah prophesies about a future servant 
a suffering servant. And he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. You see, what this psalm shows us is that we can't bear the reproach of the nations. We can't bear the iniquity of suffering. But there is one who could. There is one who would have to. When Jesus showed up, he was baptized. And when he was baptized in the Jordan River, just as Isaiah said, I will put my spirit on him, the spirit came down on Jesus and there is a voice that quoted three different scriptures. You are my son, Psalm 2. My beloved, Genesis 22, talking about the seed of Abraham, Isaiah. In whom, with whom I take delight. With whom I take delight. And that is what we just said about the suffering servant. My chosen one in whom I delight. So Jesus is the Spirit-filled, suffering servant. And you can actually take this whole psalm and you can read its fulfillment in light of what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come with a sword or a bow to bring his kingdom. We read in verse 9, But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. Jesus, the commander of the Lord's armies, was despised and rejected, Isaiah says. He stood abandoned and alone before his accusers. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John writes that Jesus' garment when he was crucified the garment symbolically representing his legacy and his inheritance was divided up amongst the soldiers, the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He became a byword among the nations. He bore the shame of his people. He was reviled because of the enemy who was bent on revenge. Verse 17, all this came upon us though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Isaiah says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Luke records that deep darkness came over the land as Jesus hung on the cross. He was the sheep to be slaughtered. He was crucified during the Passover as a true Passover lamb at the same time as all the other Passover lambs would be crucified in remembrance of how God's judgment had passed over the people who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And now the blood of the true lamb was on the cross, the doorposts that sheltered God's people from his wrath because Jesus took it in their place. 
We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Dust is always a way of speaking and referencing death. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Jesus died. He went down to the dust. His body buried in the ground. But the cry for help was answered. Because he did rise up. What's the point of all this? When the world becomes more than we can bear, we may not understand. It may not make any sense to us based on who we know God is. There often is no conclusion, like in Psalm 44. But there is unfailing love, even in the midst of it. We can know this. Whatever the reason... Whatever the reason for hard times or suffering, it can't be because God's love has failed. Why? Because he stepped in and he bore all of it with us. He did what we cannot do. He bore the suffering of the nations as a gift on their behalf. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the cry to rise up and help us is answered in His resurrection because He is alive and at the right hand of God, His love is, in fact, unbroken, unfailing. Romans 8 puts it this way, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Remember, I chose you, and I displayed it in all these ways. Will you choose me, right? Who will give any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Where is God when these things are happening? He's at the right hand of God praying for you, praying for God's will to be accomplished on your behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, the unfailing, loyal love of God, displayed in Jesus Christ, hath said, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, and this should sound familiar because we just read it, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. A direct quote from Psalm 44. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors who hit through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so when we are tested, and when it's hard 
to make sense of things. We can acknowledge that reality and take it to God. This is terrible. I don't get it. I know what you did in history. I believe it. I'm not claiming that it's false. And I know who you are. And I have claimed you as my king. And I believe in your kingdom and your plan for my future and our future. But Lord, I don't make sense of this. This is tough. And I don't know why you're allowing these things to happen or whether you've turned your back or what your plan is, but I'm calling on you now. Rise up. Rise up. Rescue us. Heal us. Save us. But not because of me. And not because of any claim on your justice that I might have. But because I know who you are. You are unfailing love. And even in the midst of all of this, I choose to believe that. And so because that's who you are, I'm calling on you to act according to your own self-proclaimed character and act. Not because of my innocence or guilt, but our cry for help is based on standing on his unfailing love, which has been crystallized and solidified and concretely made permanent in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Human beings experience the same things across the board when it comes to suffering. But what you have as a resource to face it with is vastly different between those who have Jesus and those who don't. So my question for you is, do you have him? Do you know that unfailing love? Do you have something you can hold on to? We're going to pray, and then in a moment we're going to take communion together as a, a remembrance once again of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross the ultimate sign of his chesed, his unfailing love for us. He did not even spare his own son, but gave, us, gave him up for us all. So I don't know what God is doing in the midst of this time, but I can trust this. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us because his response is to enter into it with us. And he took the suffering as the servant that we could not be on behalf of the nations so that we could receive graciously all things that he wants to give us. So let's pray. Father, as we come to your table now, we remember this gift the sign of your unfailing love ultimately brought to fruition in your servant who did what no one else could do. The psalmist could not suffer the reproach of the nations, but you did. You even suffered 
the reproach of your own people. And as they were crucifying you, you hung there praying for their forgiveness. I thank you that you are a God who does not stand aloof, but you entered into the thick of our darkness with us, for us. And that we can have hope because you are lovingly interceding before the Father on our behalf. So God, bind us more closely to yourself. And today, Lord, on behalf of those who are sick, those who are dying from cancer, those who are suffering with COVID, those who are questioning what to do, those who are in Afghanistan trembling in fear, Lord, rise up. Rise up because of your unfailing love and act. Rescue them. Rescue us, Lord. Heal this land. Lord, ultimately we trust you. That is what it means to be strong and courageous. Let our trust not be broken by this. It's in your name we pray. We want to thank you again for joining us today and let you know that we love you and Jesus loves you. And you always have a place here at ACC. If you made a decision for Christ today or you just want to talk with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out. We have a really easy contact form you can fill out on our website or you can call us at 360-293-3729. We would love to talk with you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.